Welcome to Art Holes, everyone. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who has no background in either topic. If you're new to the show, glad to have you. Here's the general premise. Until very recently, I spent my entire life avoiding art really in all capacities. I just didn't get it and developed a severe ignorance on the topic, a child's level understanding of art as a function, a quasi-functioning adult. So now I'm going artist by artist and reading a bunch of books for each series that I'll list out in a second, and we will be taking a microscope to the artist's insane lives, their world, what their art meant, and the stories are crazy and we're going to learn an irresponsible amount. Any art that's discussed in an episode will be posted on its own Instagram post at Artholes Podcast when each episode goes out so you don't have to Google if you want to check the stuff out. We won't be going through every one of Frida's paintings, just the ones that are good to know about, paintings that are representative of certain phases of her art, or referencing important and sometimes horrifying moments in Frida's life. If you are completely new or haven't listened to the first episode of Caravaggio yet, I highly recommend listening to just that one episode before getting started with this story. It's a standalone episode that sets up the context of that series by going through the first roughly 1600 years of the Catholic Church in Europe. It's it's a pretty weird episode, and a lot of people die in not ideal ways, but it should help give some historical context, especially for this episode. Not crucial, but about halfway through, it'll help out quite a bit. Okay, Frida Kahlo. Uh, This is the series that I was very nervous to start. It's my first time covering a female artist, and as of now, Frida Kahlo is way more than just an artist. I don't think it's too controversial to say that Frida has become more of a cultural icon than someone known for her art itself and what it means. You don't even need to use her last name. Just say Frida and even I know who you were talking about. She's become an icon of strength and independence and her features are so visually recognizable, her hair, her eyebrows, that she can be turned into a cartoon image that's easily identifiable for kids. So she's on lunchboxes and pillows and stickers. She has become someone that children can look up to, especially young girls. And I got nervous for a second that what if there are things in Frida's history that, I mean, who the hell am I to be criticizing a feminist icon for children? That feels like a position that doesn't need to be filled right now. I don't need that job because we're going to delve into all of her complexities. And this will be a long series and we will be crawling into everything. The good news is she is amazing. All things considered, there's going to be no myth-busting. Frida was a genuinely great human being with an inspirational story who was adored by the people whose lives she touched. And we're going to get to feel and experience all of that through her art. The bad news is, that's what's going to make this all the harder to get through at points. There are some incredibly difficult portions of this story. And that's not a spoiler alert or anything that the titles of the main sources for the series themselves won't immediately give away. My main sources for the series are Frida Kahlo, The Brush of Anguish by Martha Zamora, Frida Kahlo, Torment and Triumph in Her Life and Art by Malka Drucker, The Diary of Frida Kahlo by, well, Frida Kahlo, You Are Always With Me, Letters to Mama, which is a collection of Frida's letters to her mother, Frida Kahlo by Jeanette Ancori, Frida, a biography of Frida Kahlo by Hayden Herrera, and I cried quite a few times while reading this one. Uh, Once at an airport and another time at work. It was very embarrassing. Uh, Mexico, From the Olmecs to the Aztecs by Michael D. Koo and Rex Kuntz. 
The Course of Mexican History, second edition by Michael Meyer and William Sherman. And this is a Mexican history book written by two white guys in 1983. So I had to totally translate some stuff into not 1983. And finally, Fire and Blood, a History of Mexico by T.R. Fahrenbach. You can imagine where this story is headed just based on some of the torment and anguish titles alone. There will be a lot of emotional whiplash in the series, a grown man crying alone at the airport level of emotional whiplash. So I think it might be a good idea that when things are good and we're having fun, to step back, be present for a second, acknowledge what's going on, and really take everything in and appreciate it, because it'll likely get really awful pretty quickly. The last bit of housekeeping before we get started, uh, if you're a return listener, you already know this, uh, I'm going to screw up a lot of names, like a bunch of names. It doesn't really matter what the language is, English included, I'm awful at it. I try to do research on pronunciation beforehand, but sometimes it just pops up. My buddy Greg pointed out that when discussing a Caravaggio painting, Omnia Vincita More, I said Omnia Vincita More. I made it French for some reason. Everybody knows the word for love in Italian is amore, there's even that stupid song about it. When the stars make you drool Just like a pasta fazool That's amore When you dance down the street With a cloud at your feet You're in love I'm from an upstate New York Italian household and I had to hear that dumb song incessantly and it drove me nuts and ended up making me hate that 50s tuxedo-wearing finger snapping crooner crap. Frank Sinatra was terrible and he was a terrible person. But the the name thing, yeah, it's going to start bad, it's going to stay not great, but I promise that I'm trying. Except for the obvious one. I'm going to say Mexico and not Mexico, and to the listeners down in Mexico, I apologize. I'll try to hit that soft X when I can, but if I concentrate on reversing over 30 years of speech patterns, I'm, I'm going to get confused and it's just going to get worse. Oaxaca is going to get turned into something resembling a, a deep southie Boston accent. It's wicked fire, and nobody likes that accent. And I also can't roll my R's. It just doesn't work. Thankfully, some of the names really early on appear to be almost impossible to pronounce, so nobody's going to know the difference. Because our story can't start with Frida or her parents or family or even the world around her. Her story starts out and continues through a time of massive transformation in Mexico. Socially, culturally, economically, politically, and Frida is at the center of it. And we can't just parachute into that moment, or at least I couldn't, because again, before the research for this series, I had absolutely no idea what was going on with any of this. So we are going to take a concentrated dose of Mexican history straight to the face, and it is a terrific story. And as we get to Frida, we'll be in the position to, not perfectly, but at least be in somewhat better of a position to understand what it meant to be Mexican as an evolving cultural and national identity, the idea of Mexicanidad. And Frida's story starts out when a lot of crazy things were going on in the world. The first half of the 20th century is bananas expansion and change, but the one thing that sort of separates Mexico is that all of that is happening while they're trying to preserve a culture that evolved for thousands of years in that very area in one of the six initial cradles of civilization. In about midway through our story, a grown man will get tired of how many exorcisms people keep giving him, so he'll constantly try to hang himself with his own pajamas. It's a crazy story. So as your Blanquito tour guide, you're really mispronouncing things, Blanquito tour guide, we're going to go back, way back in time. And hopefully by the end, we'll all be a little bit more Mexican together. (laughs) 
Our story begins around the year 7000 BCE, and we're roughly in the area that's between 14 degrees and 21 degrees latitude north. It is warm and it's sunny, and starting from the drier lowlands of the central plateau in Mexico and moving south, it gets green. There are vast areas of plains and multiple different kinds of deciduous and wet forests. We're in an area that encompasses a lot of the current day central Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, Belize, Honduras, Nicaragua, and I think just the very northern tip of Costa Rica. This will eventually be called Mesoamerica, and we're starting here for the same reason the other cradles of civilization popped up, food. Food is goddamn delicious, but being a hunter-gatherer and always having to go from hand to mouth, wondering if you're gonna starve to death if the hunt doesn't go well or there aren't enough berries or nuts, it's kinda stressful. Hunting and gathering doesn't lend itself to a lot of free time to build more structurally sound and permanent homes, centralized places for people to congregate, and then ultimately villages and cities, let alone more complex, awesome things like aqueducts, formalized education and legal systems, high-definition porn and air conditioning. Humans eat what civilizations farm. And without that first agricultural revolution, the, the Neolithic demographic transition, you don't get an organized and structured society. And that's what Mesoamerica was great for, farming. There was a ton of arable land with rich soil, a temperate climate, and a ton of rain. And by a ton of rain, I mean shitloads of rain. If you've ever spent time in southern Mexico, there can be comical amounts of rain that doesn't really seem to stop. The Neolithic switch in Mesoamerica started when people began to understand how to farm maize, tomatoes, avocados, chilies, and continue to feed themselves and sustain themselves in that area over time. This evolved into the concept of sedentism, the idea of living in a place across seasons, across the migration patterns of animals in the area. It's your home, your permanent home. Being able to call Mexico home began when we as a species started to develop the idea of having a home in the Western Hemisphere. That's deep history. So later in this episode, when a man holds a full military funeral for his own leg and there are songs and poetry and pride in country, it's going to still seem pretty over the top. But we'll at least understand the passion a bit more after seeing what Mexico goes through. As these agricultural communities merge and become more advanced with stonemasonry, many cities start to develop. At some point, those areas get large enough and complex enough and with enough common ideals, governmental and organizational structures, a religion, something to bind people together, you get your first major civilization in the Western Hemisphere, the Olmecs. The Olmecs evolved as a culture and a society around 1400 BCE in the southern area of the Gulf of Mexico, right at the bottom part before it scoops up into the Yucatan Peninsula. The Olmecs had their own religion, governance structures, although it's a little unclear how they operated. But they even had a common sport that everyone loved. People think it was kind of like a team racquetball, and the competitors probably wore helmets. And we know a lot of what we know about the Olmecs through the art that survived. Starting in the early stages of the Olmecs, you'll see smaller items, like figurines carved out of jade or stone, and a lot of it is of the natural world, the stuff that they had around them. Fish, jaguars, and there are hints within the consistency of the portrayals of the animals that there was some sort of natural component to their religion. As the Olmec culture really advanced and the scale increased, we see a lot of large stone sculptures. A lot of times it was sculptures of just heads. 
Those are referred to as the Colossus Heads of the Olmecs, and they're wearing what's believed to be the helmets for that ball game. And it appears as though there was some sort of spiritual and religious component to the games. They loved their sports, and the Colossus Heads of the Olmecs will become the lasting image of that culture. The cultural impact can continue to be seen today in the modern era, influencing the 1974 movie Zardoz, co-produced in the U.S. by 20th Century Fox, that has a giant, talking, floating stone colossus head that Sean Connery climbs into while wearing a red mankini and thigh-high leather boots. The gun is good. The gun is good! The penis is evil. The penis shoots seeds. And also, if you grew up in the 90s and watched Nickelodeon, Olmec was the talking head from the game show Legends of the Hidden Temple. Yes, America turned the first civilization in the Western Hemisphere into a head who cares about guns and penises in an ultra-competitive game show for children where the goal is to loot the treasure of another culture. We are, if nothing, a very on-brand country. The Olmecs eventually fade out around 300 BCE. Nobody's really sure why, but a lot of the Olmec culture can be seen in the next phase of civilization that evolves in Mesoamerica, most likely because they had such extensive trade routes. And it's through these trade routes that the, the post-Olmecs begin to move north, south, and west. The ones who traveled south merged with another culture that was on the rise and will eventually become the Mayans. At this point, the Mayans already had cities, but they really grew around 250 CE. That's when they built massive temples and pyramids, developed a complex understanding of astronomy, but we'll get back to them. Spoiler alert, the Mayans don't make it, and for our purposes, we're a little more concerned with what's going on west and north. Those that went west would eventually hit the Pacific and would become the Zapotecs, and those that went north towards what today Mexico City were the Teotihuacan people. Even though these three groups, as well as a bunch of the other civilizations that built up in central Mexico, they had split in distinct cultures that evolved, there was a significant commonality between them, which makes it way easier for gringos to be able to shorthand it and just say Mesoamerican, rather than deal with the distinct cultural differences between the Zapotecs and the Mixtecs. On the other hand, all these similarities make it harder to determine who invented what and when, and whether to give credit to the Olmecs for dispersing inventions and religious ideas after their collapse, and that's why a lot of these cultures had such similarities, or was it the Mayans because they were a lot better at keeping records? It's during this transition time that right around now, Mesoamerica had also started to become mathematically advanced, and if you're a return listener, you know how much I hate math. It's right before 32 BCE that the concept of zero would be used, arguably for the first time in human history. There's a ton of conflicting claims about who actually invented zero, whether or not it happened in India, the Babylonians, and a lot of it seems to be competing archaeologists trying to finagle the argument about cuneiform technicalities to publish research papers. I got really sidetracked when doing this research, so let's just say that it's one of the earliest uses of zero. Maybe the Olmecs, maybe the Mayans, started to use zero in a three-level calendar system, which sounds like an absolute nightmare to keep track of. This was a calendar structure that, on a macro level, was shared across the various Mesoamerican cultures after the fall of the Olmecs. The first level of this nightmare calendar was your standard 365 days, which makes sense because they had no idea what the sun was except that its patterns were responsible for every aspect of their lives. And it's why a lot of early cultures see the sun as their primary god, so you tend to keep track of that. 
Underneath, on a second level, was a 260-day calendar that was more of a religious ritual calendar that was separated into 13-day periods called tresinas. Within each tresina, the 13-day period, you would pray and devote and have feasts to whatever god was dedicated to that tresina. And then the third level is called a calendar round, which occurs every 52 years, and it's 52 years because 52 is the least common multiple of 260 and 365. And I'm so bad at math that I legit recognize least common multiple as a concept that I'm sure I learned at one point, but it is gone now. The calendar is usually portrayed in ornate stone carvings with visual representations of each god, and I'm not really a religion guy, but it seems like a pretty elegant way of tracking your time on Earth by using arithmetic to blend spiritual beliefs with astronomy and the natural world. So let's go back up to Teotihuacan. This city and surrounding area, oh, they also have this calendar system. It's a really good reference point to compare the developments of other cities and populations. Teotihuacan really began to take hold in the first century CE and then it absolutely exploded. When compared to the rest of civilization in the Western Hemisphere, Teotihuacan was Rome, Paris, and present-day Mexico City combined. As a matter of scale of what was happening here, as, a, as an idea of civilization, the notion of people living together and having a functional society, London wasn't even formed until around 43 CE when it was called Lundium by the Romans, and it served as a regional port area on the Thames. That population rose to about 35,000 people and fell until it had only around 14,000 people living there in the year 1100. That is an accidentally having sex with your own cousin-level population. It's not impressive. At its height, Teotihuacan had a population of around 125,000 people. It was culturally diverse, and there was no real separation of church and state. It was believed to be a theocratic society, and everything was incorporated into the polytheistic religion. They had a complicated urban layout that was centered around the Sun Pyramid, which is the third largest pyramid in the world. There was another pyramid nearby in the neighboring Cholula that was the largest human-made structure in the Western Hemisphere until we constructed Cape Canaveral to send people to the moon, and today it is still the largest pyramid in the world. In addition to the carved idols and the ceramics that the Mesoamerican artists were creating, they also created murals, large-scale art painted directly onto walls. It's similar to the fresco paintings that evolved in the Middle East and Europe, and they started early. Within that Great Pyramid of Cholula, which likely took hundreds of years to build and came together in ten distinct stages, is an almost 200-foot wall mural. The mural has been dated to around 200 CE, on the early side of what's considered to be the classic period in Mesoamerican history, and it's called Los Bebedores, the Drinkers, and it's a bunch of people in various stages of drunkenness during a religious feast. Everyone is hammered, some people are throwing up, some are pooping, and they're all drunk off of something called pulque. The drink was originally called Istak Okli by the Mesoamericans, and as much as red wine was the running theme in last series and seemed to start both wars and orgies, Pultke will be a reference point for us throughout this series, only with fewer orgies. Initially, Pultke was used as primarily a religious drink for ceremonies and festivals. It's the drink of the gods, and it was consumed by the religious leaders and the very elite, who were more or less the same people. Over time, though, we'll see who drinks pulque and what pulque means within Mexican history. We'll see that evolve, and it'll have varying connotations. 
In a few episodes, we'll be talking about a wedding announcement in the newspaper. It's a very special day. And in that announcement, the groom specifically mentioned that the wedding officiant, the local mayor, also brews pulque. It's a seemingly minor detail in the article, but the groom making sure that it was in there and what the cultural and political implications of what it meant to convey, it is enormous. That pulque is even playing a central role in one of the oldest surviving and largest murals in Mesoamerican history is pretty cool. Even the puking and pooping stuff, it must have been a pretty wild party, especially considering how important murals will be throughout this story. Most of the people in Teotihuacan lived in these large single-story and ornate apartment structures. There were thousands of them, and that bred more of a community feel. And since everyone more or less lived the same way, there was a very low level of inequality. The city had a very low Gini index, or Gini coefficient, which is an absurdly complicated-looking formula with a bunch of diagonal E's and lines in it that calculates wealth distribution in a given community. It's measured from 0 to 1, and the closer to 1 you get, the more wealth is concentrated at the top, and I guess everybody else can go figure out their own stuff. The Gini coefficient for Teotihuacan was 0.16, extremely low for a community. I'm not saying that's good or bad either way as far as how awesome it would be to live there, but there weren't many class distinctions. During this time, the Teotihuacans, the Zapotecs, the Mayans, and the other regional groups, they traded pottery, spices, obsidian, royalty married royalty, and they were involved in each other's political affair. This whole thing tracks pretty parallel to what's going on in Europe, only with less feeding live people to lions, mostly because they don't have lions here. If they did, who knows? Eventually, the Teotihuacans start to traffic those trade routes south quite a bit more, and they begin to systemically integrate themselves into and influence the Mayans' whole setup. You begin to see distinct Teotihuacan architecture styles popping up all over Mayan buildings, and they start to mess with the Mayan political and dynastic system. Over a series of centuries, And there were changes to the ruling structure, political systems, and there were internal conflicts that bumped up against external conflicts. Basically, everyone was really pissed off with everyone for a very long time. This all coincided with what people think were environmental issues and drought, so food storage and distribution got all wonky, as well as what historians believe were pathogens that caused gastrointestinal distress. Basically, they diarrheaed themselves to a dehydration death, which sounds miserable. I hate being thirsty after a long night out. And with this perfect storm of collective factors, the Mayans slowly begin to collapse around the 9th century. They were still around, but it's in smaller pockets, and there's clusters of migratory patterns, mostly north and south, so they're much more spread out. This is the beginning of the Terminal Classic period in Mexico, which eventually reaches its way up to Teotihuacan, and that culture starts to collapse. With the Teotihuacans gone, we've now had the rise and fall of two major and complex global civilizations in the same area. There's a lot of history here, and out of that vacuum, we get the Toltec people who rise up, but eventually they dissipate around 1150. It was roughly around this time, circa 1000 CE, around 100 years before the Toltecs fade out, that Eric the Red and Leif Erikson, two Norse Eric explorers, led an expedition from Greenland to present-day Newfoundland and Canada. They don't establish a lasting colony, and it's way north of our story, but it does start a silent countdown that the Mesoamericans have no idea is coming, and it will be absolutely devastating. The Arrival of the Europeans 
We're now in another transition period where there's not a super dominant group in the Central Valley, and that makes things a lot easier for nomadic groups to come in and fill the void, and that's when the Mexica people travel into the Central Valley. No one's 100% sure where they came from, but the most common theory is that they walked south from northern Mexico. Their language was Nahuatl, and they were a nomadic people on a mission. The Mexica were nomads until they found a signal from one of their primary gods, a god... Yeah, fuck. A god named Huitzilopochtli, nailed it, I don't know, who not surprisingly was their sun god, but he was also the god of war and the god that a lot of human sacrifices were meant to appease. As terrible as human sacrifices were, I personally see no difference between that and anything that happened during the Inquisitions and anything that's about to happen in about 20 minutes. Huitzilopochtli said the Mexica people would find their home once they saw a prickly pear cactus that had an eagle standing on it with a snake in its beak. Very specific. I'm sure there was a ton of near misses. Very frustrating. They finally saw the sign from God, the eagle, the prickly pear cactus, the whole thing, on a large island in the middle of what was then a giant lake in current-day Mexico City basin called Lake Texcoco, which was actually five connected lakes. Some were freshwater and there were marshes in there as well. Another version of the story, which wasn't the very specific sign from God thing, which feels a little bit like an after-the-fact vision, was that the nomadic group bounced around central Mexico and couldn't find a home that wasn't already taken. They had a short stint living as house guest of the Toltec people until they flayed the king's daughter and a priest came to dinner wearing her skin like a daughter suit. So they got kicked out and they kept moving and Lake Texcoco was the best place with arable farmland that wasn't already occupied. Regardless of how it happened, there was fresh water, the interior island provided geographic protection, making it harder for outsiders to attack the city. This is perfect. The people who would become the source of the name of the present-day country, Mexico, settled and started building, and they built fast. The Mexica were governed by an absolute monarchy, and the king served as both the religious and the political leader, who claimed lineage with the gods. They had a nobility class, a landowning class, and the bulk of the people were your everyday common laborers and farmers. However, not everybody was on the same page about who was in charge and what the society should look like, and maybe they came at different times, 30 years apart. It's a long time when you're talking about building a society, so the Mexica split up. One group settles on that interior island, another settles on the west side of the lake, and a third on the east. They really liked this lake. By around 1325, just over a hundred years later, the city that was settled in that middle part of the island was developing into a huge cosmopolitan area called Tenochtitlan. Tenochtitlan was split up into four main zones and there were giant marketplaces, temples, public squares, and palaces. It was a thriving city. About a decade later, though, in 1337, a large group of the Mexicas separated from Tenochtitlan and began to build a separate city on the northern part of the island called Tlatelolco. They built their own religious pyramids, had their own rulers, and the two cities remained interconnected by heavy trade, and culturally, they, they came from the same broader group. On the west side of the lake, there were the Tepanek people who weren't trapped on an island and had a little more room to grow. They had smaller groups to go to war with and conquer, and they were becoming the dominant power in the region. On the east side of the lake were the Texcoco people. Each of these societies had major capitals and then subjugate lands outside. They were becoming city-states. This is the era of the city-state in central Mexico. 
Eventually, and it was bound to happen, the city-states begin to go to war with one another and fight over territory, and this all starts to come together for all of the Mexica city-states in 1426. That was the year that the king of the Tepanex, the more powerful city-state on the west side of the lake, he died, and it's the typical situation where the king dies and leaves two princes who do not get along. This is evidenced by the fact that one of the brothers died a very mysterious death right after that looked suspiciously like an assassination and that kicked off what would be a civil war. Then Tenochtitlan, who wasn't really vibing with the Tepanex at that time either, they realized something. They already dominated the island and also controlled Texcoco on the east. All they needed to do was convince one of the Tepanex cities, Tlacopan, to fight with them, and then it's everybody against whoever comes out of that civil war within the Tepanex. In 1427, when the timing was right, all three city-states agreed to team up and they go to war with the Tepanex, and with their combined forces, they won, and they split up the Tepanex lands. And I know there are a lot of T names with L's next to them and C's and O's places, and it's very confusing, but I promise this will clear up in just a second. In 1430, they figured out something amazing. Teamwork. This war alliance was beneficial to everyone, and they figured out that if they just worked together and didn't keep fighting with one another, they'd be a more powerful and productive society. They realized that the sum is greater than the parts. This is great. Things are really starting to come together here. Civilization is hard. We had a couple almost near misses with the Olmecs and Teotihuacan, but they just couldn't ride that wave. It's disappointing to come that close and then, god damn it, you're, you're riding that wave to societal orgasm and you can feel it on the horizon, but then the dog starts scratching at the door and you miss it. And then you have to start over. But it's not entirely from scratch. You're still working with some momentum. And then he says something stupid or she says something crazy and it's distracting and you miss the wave again. It's like, ah, damn it. And then you finally hit that one moment. The realization that you won't lose it again no matter what stupid thing someone else says. And it's happening and it feels great and you just... The varying groups of the Mexica people that split up came back together, and they civilization so hard, together, all over the Mexican valley. And with shaking legs and overly sensitive skin, this triple alliance of Tenochtitlan, Tlacopan, and Texcoco will be called the Aztec Empire. Even though their name wasn't actually the Aztecs, that's a name that was given to them by the historian William Prescott in the 19th century, you know, white people, but we'll go with it because that's how they're commonly known. The Aztecs were now firing on all cylinders because everybody is more or less working together. As they spread out, acquiring new lands through treaties or outright conquering, which was more commonplace, the empire began to have a central power source in Tenochtitlan as the most dominant member of the alliance. There were also the subordinate city-states that were allowed to act independently as long as they paid tribute to the three emperors or leaders, most of it going to Tenochtitlan. And that's great for Tenochtitlan, but you could see that maybe this will irritate everyone who's giving up a bunch of stuff and not getting much in return. The Aztec Empire grew fast and it grew wealthy, with gold, copper, jade, turquoise and spices, obsidian, things were being traded all over the Central Valley and money was flooding into Tenochtitlan. The dominant language in the area was still Nahuatl, but the empire was very diverse in the languages and customs in the different provinces. 
As Aztec society became more complex, their cities began to resemble and function much more like what European cities looked like at the time. Tenochtitlan had been specifically compared to Venice insofar as how the city was constructed and operated. The main cities within the Alliance, their genie indexes fluctuated between 0.3 and 0.4, so they were becoming a much more complicated and layered economy, and they began to get more technologically advanced. To connect the urban areas on the island with the other side of the lake, they built complex bridge and causeway structures. To help feed everybody, they farmed on land beyond the lake, but also maximized the marshes and shallow lake, and they used reeds and river mud to build floating gardens called chinampa. They also constructed this crazy dual-pipe aqueduct that brought in water. Not for drinking, though. They had mountain spring water for that. They were very bougie about some stuff. It was kind of hilarious. I am way more used to a Eurocentric history, and we have admittedly a very dirty history. For centuries, people would throw chamber pots of shit out of their third-story windows onto the streets and whoever happened to be walking by. In Victorian London, there were roughly 1,000 pounds of horse poop, steamy road apples, that hit the streets daily. And to solve the problem, the city's government hired a bunch of 12-year-old boys to run out into the horse-drawn carriage traffic and try to pick up all the poop. That's not going to fly in Tenochtitlan, though. The aqueduct system was almost used primarily for cleaning. They were so into keeping stuff clean that they built an incredibly complex system just for doing laundry, bathing. They were super into bathing. Most people bathed twice a day. And after nine hours of Caravaggio, constantly thinking about how horrifying everything and everybody must have smelled, these cities probably smelled pretty normal. It's a very pleasant surprise. And finally, they also used the aqueduct to clean the streets every day with fresh water. They did the New Orleans Bourbon Street thing. There was mandatory public schooling for children, but then sometimes the kids were sold into slavery to pay off debts. Uh, it wasn't all great. They did have slaves, but I'm from America. Slavery doesn't feel like the right place to be pointing fingers. It was also a highly religious society, so the emperors ruled with divine right, so that level of perceived infallibility made for some bad leadership decisions. Again, we all have issues there. And there were also human sacrifices, and maybe they ate people. It's not confirmed, but there's evidence that some people were cooked in pots, and I guess turned into some sort of people stew. And the main hypothesis was that cannibalism happened because protein was so hard to come by. Though the actual evidence for this happening is basically non-existent, although why would you cook a stew if you weren't going to eat it? I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. All things considered, this is a flourishing society that's finding its legs, and they're doing so with the cultural memory of thousands of years of history they didn't even know they had. When the Aztecs found the ruins of Teotihuacan, they were the ones who gave it that name, which means place where the gods were born, because they thought that's where the universe came to be. Not realizing that the only reason why they played a certain ball game was because it traced its roots all the way back to the Olmecs. The ruins of that city that they found were their roots. Also, Pulque. The Aztec religious ceremonies involved pulque, which was now allowed to be consumed outside of rituals to be a nutritional supplement for older people and pregnant women, because it's oddly kind of good for you. Not drinking while you're pregnant, that's not good, but it was better than dying of starvation. There's an article that was published in June 2016 in the scientific journal Frontiers in Microbiology. 
when pulque was broken down by the scientists, it was found to have a ton of amino acids, minerals, vitamins, probiotics, and they also found that if you drank a lot of it early in pregnancies, you know, not good. Also, that complicated three-tier calendar system is still around. The Aztecs are using it, so even their religion was still, at least in part, very similar to that of the Olmecs. For each Tresena, there were certain ceremonies and feasts, which sounds just like a convenient excuse to drink pulque, and there were also elaborately colored costumes and dances, and people would make carvings and idols of the gods. One of the Tresenas was dedicated to Tlatsodiotl, who was the goddess of lust, childbirth, dirtiness, vice, adultery, and purification, and also the goddess that gave everybody STDs. Tlatsodiotl was the one who ate all the dirt in the world. She was the sin-eater of the religion, the one who purifies, and to celebrate her, the Aztecs would offer up their own poop as a way to ask for forgiveness. It was a kind acknowledgement that the people who were forced to take on the most shit on a daily basis and birth children so the species could survive should at least be acknowledged somewhat for being important. She's most often portrayed in carvings and idols as a woman squatting down looking distressed with a crowning baby head coming out. I'll post an image. It kind of looks like the movie Alien, where the alien head opens its mouth and then the tongue is just a smaller version of the alien head. And I don't know much about childbirth, clearly. But I do know that she was a very important god because there was not a lot of pulling out going on in the Aztec Empire. Since its founding, the population of the Aztec Empire had exploded to around 6 million people. And then there were the neighboring Zapotec people, who had slowly and consistently been growing since the Terminal Classic period, the Mixtecs, even the Mayans had rebuilt since they abandoned their original Classic period cities. We haven't even talked about the Inca, who were down in South America and were larger and more advanced than any of the Mesoamerican civilizations. We are now approaching a time when the best we can get here is an estimate and there were varying theories how to get here. All in all, using a back of the napkin math and averaging from sources that aren't of crazy people with weird internet theories, we are looking at roughly 37 million people south of the Rio Grande River. Specifically within central Mexico, where our story is mostly taking place, we're looking at like 11 million people. This is a huge increase in population, and civilization and progress have really taken hold. I mean, the Aztecs water Tenochtitlan streets on a daily basis. And it is by no means a perfect civilization, but it's thriving and it's figuring itself out. And this is one of those moments where we really need to be present and lean in and enjoy. So if you have some pulque, take a sip. I've got a beer, so I'm going to take a sip of that. And let's listen to the sounds that have been carrying us through the beginning of this story. The kids not sold into slavery, just getting out of school, old people getting drunk in the temples, and let's just appreciate this moment. Because in just a few years' time, almost all of these people will die a terrible death. Across the Atlantic, about 6,300 miles or over 10,000 kilometers, there was a man with an idea, and a dude with an idea can often result in terrible consequences. In Lingurian, which was sort of the official language of the Republic of Genoa, a small nation on the northern coast of present-day Italy, he was born Cristoforo Colombo. In Latin, he was known as Christophorus Columbus, and today he's known as Christopher Columbus. 
Born in October 1451, his family was part of the merchant middle class in the wool weaving business, but that was not his destiny. He wanted no part of making sweaters, and he left that business when he was 14 to train to become a sailor. Being a merchant sailor was an incredibly dangerous but exciting and potentially lucrative career. Columbus worked as an apprentice on merchant ships for different families and became a very talented navigator, and he was involved in a wide variety of sailing. He took part in naval battles off the coast of Portugal, was part of armed convoys that helped protect cargo ships all the way through the Aegean Sea, the coast of Africa. Primarily, Columbus was a corsair. That's the above-board, acceptable side of being a seafarer, a privateer who would be contracted out by wealthy families, companies, and nations. You still sank ships and killed people, but it was at least considered part of the game. The flip side of being a corsair was just being a straight-up pirate. Legally different, if not too terribly different in practice. Piracy is just stealing somebody else's booty and killing them without even trying to come up with a bullshit reason like, I did it for the crown but many Corsairs also operated as pirates, especially when they didn't have any contracts. You Corsaired for the respectability and you pirated for the wealth and Columbus did both. I don't know why people freak out about this and we just lionize this asshole. He was just like everybody else. There's no direct evidence Columbus was a pirate because he was never caught and his son was his main biographer and that really set the tone for history, but there's a significant amount of circumstantial evidence. There are some letters that he wrote to King John II of Portugal about a ship he tried to steal called the Ferrandina that hinted, obviously, at piracy. He also had the Pinzon brothers working for him, uh, Martin Alonso, who would go on to Captain La Pinta, and Vincenzo Yanez, who would Captain La Nina on Columbus's first trip across the Atlantic. There was also another Pinzon brother named Francisco Martin, but he was kind of like the third Manning brother Cooper, no one really cared about him, but those three guys, they were pirates. We, of course, know Columbus for his trips across the Atlantic, trips that were not to prove the Earth was round. That's not a real thing. People back then had known the Earth was round for like 2,000 years ever since Pythagoras. This was about money. A massive component of the European economy and how Europe was becoming so wealthy was trade across the Silk Road to Asia. Things were pretty smooth for quite a while, until the Ottoman Turks captured Constantinople in 1453 during their Crusades. This is the point where episode 1 of Caravaggio kicks in and sort of helps out. Constantinople was the major port between the Silk Road and the Mediterranean, and the major choke point. With Constantinople in Ottoman Turk hands, it was incredibly dangerous and costly for Europeans to trade with Asia. But Columbus had an idea. He'd been studying maps that were created by Muslims who sailed west hundreds of years earlier, and he realized that he could also sail west across the ocean and get to Asia that way, which would be cheaper and safer, and ship technology was better so they could bring back more goods. It was going to be awesome. His math, however, was wrong, and not even sort of wrong, fantastically wrong, because the Arabic mile is shorter than the Roman mile. He's not even close to being right. When he presented the plan to the Portuguese to get ships and men and money, they said no because his math was wrong and the trip was going to be longer than he thought. Disappointed, I'm sure, but still undaunted, he then went to the Republic of Genoa. They also noticed that his math was wrong and turned him down. The Republic of Venice also said no and said, hey man, your math is wrong. Yet 100% wrong Columbus was unfazed. 
It wasn't until January 1492 that Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand of Spain said yes to the math that was still not correct. And this decision, bad math and all, actually makes sense if you don't value human life. This was during the phase of Europe when everybody was getting filthy rich and the church was charging plenary indulgences and they were getting rich. If some dipshit discovers anything, great. Spain can increase its colonial footprint, get more money for trade, and then what? what's the worst case scenario? This idiot drowns on the way there or back? Nobody cares. With a green light from Spain and the funds that came with it, Columbus makes four trips between 1492 and 1503. He establishes mostly a colonial footprint for Spain in the Caribbean, Hispaniola, Cuba, the Bahamas, that area. He met the various native peoples, uh, specifically the Taino people of Hispaniola, of which he said, quote, They were very well built, with very handsome bodies and good faces. They do not carry arms or know them. They should make good servants, unquote. The Taino people were friendly and welcoming, so of course they were enslaved until eventually they were wiped off the face of the earth. The Siguayo, not as friendly. They weren't taking any of these people's shit, and they fought back. And then one native guy got stabbed in the ass at one point, and then Columbus stole upwards of 25 native people and took them back to Spain, although only eight survived the voyage. He also brought back syphilis to Europe. Most likely, syphilis just happened to start spreading in Europe around the time he got back from his trips to the Caribbean. For purposes of our story, the big change is that now Spain has a financial foothold in the Caribbean. What Columbus had done was open up the Americas commercially. There's now economic viability and less of a reason for Spain to deal with the Silk Road, the Ottomans, Asia, all of that. They now had an alternative source for goods that could be sold in Europe. This will, of course, still being on brand, become a federal holiday in America. In America, every year on the second Monday of October, with all appropriate reverence, we have a federal holiday to celebrate a man who never stepped foot on American soil and wasn't even the first European to step foot in North America. Instead, we celebrate the shit out of the commercialization of the Western Hemisphere and the enslavement of Native people. The Spanish arrival in the Caribbean also meant that there were tons of people in this new world to convert to Catholicism. That's the one thing that can't be lost here. It's the point in Europe where the secular authorities and the Catholic Church are almost one and the same. They operate very much in tandem. You don't get Spain without getting the church. As we know from the Caravaggio series, this was the height of the Catholic Church's expansion. Desire for more territory, wealth, conversion of heathens, snorting lines of plenary indulgence taxes for stuff not to be a sin anymore, and when you have an addiction, you look elsewhere. You need to find a new hookup. Europe is a small area. There's only so many people you can convert. And for the secular powers, there's only so many places you can fight over for land, port cities, for merchant vessels. So this is a great situation right now. With this footprint in the quote-unquote new world, everybody's got the opportunity to make something out of this. And everybody's going to be super happy except the native people who live here. While Columbus was off doing his thing, pillaging, enslaving, being an overall dick, we're going to meet the real villain of this story. Columbus was just a warm-up, a, a palate cleanser of douchebaggery, if you will. The real villain of this story is at this point only a child. A shitty, shitty child. 
I would say what? Conservatively, 99.99 keep adding nines percent of the time? You're not allowed to call a child an asshole just in life ever? Stone-faced, look at them and be like, you know, you're, you're really an asshole. You can't do that because they're children. Children aren't actually assholes. They're children. Except this one. This kid really, really sucks. He was a very high-maintenance and demanding child, and by 16 years old, he was already referred to as, quote, ruthless. And even back then, when 16 was really like 42, for a kid to be called ruthless at the start, it's not good. And it's going to get worse, way worse. This god-awful child came from a family that was relatively well-connected, but not rich, and he was training to become a lawyer, because of course he was, except that he was way more interested in the adventures of Christopher Columbus and the New World. This steaming pile of dumpster trash wrapped in skin would eventually use a combination of his legal skills and ruthlessness when he finally gets the opportunity in 1504 to join the adventure. Now a burgeoning, miserable excuse for a young adult, Hernan Cortez set sail for the Caribbean to make a name for himself. When Cortez arrived in Española at the fresh young age of 18, he immediately registered as a citizen, got to make it legal, and he began to work his way up the ranks of the colonial Spanish administration. In 1511, Cortez was part of the Spanish forces that conquered Cuba under the leadership of Diego Velázquez, who was named the governor of New Spain. For the next, like, eight years, Cortez becomes Velasquez's chief administrator, his treasurer. He was incredibly ambitious, and eventually Velasquez got a little worried about Cortez's, let's call it an almost sociopathic ambition. Cortez married a woman named Catalina, who was actually Diego Velasquez's sister-in-law, but not before getting a little inappropriate with Catalina's sister. Hernan Cortez's real ambition, though, was the mainland. He knew the true wealth and power wouldn't be on the islands, and he petitioned Velasquez to let him take a group of men and establish a settlement. Velasquez responded, No, you most certainly cannot because you're an absolute crazy person, so Cortez went anyway. Taking with him, I saw a range of around 500 to 600 Spanish soldiers, now technically mercenaries because Cortez was not on a sanctioned trip, a bunch of crossbows, arquebuses, which were early guns, some small cannons, slaves, and horses. And on February 18th, 1519, Hernan Cortez set sail to Mesoamerica. Yay! When he got there, he knew he needed to make this illegal mission somehow legal. So Cortez founded the settlement of La Villa Rica de la Veracruz in the name of the king, making him answerable to the king now and not Velasquez. He then quit his job, his old job with the Spanish, had his men elect him captain and mayor of this new settlement until he received royal orders that said otherwise. Boom. Legal. Cortez and his men then made their way inland when they eventually ran into the Totonac people. And when the Totonac met the Spanish, they were already mad that they had to send 20 people to Tenochtitlan for human sacrifice. And Cortez convinced them to rebel against the Aztecs. This illegal trip was escalating quickly. And some of his soldiers, they noticed how quickly this was escalating and they were not on board with what was happening. How did we get allies so fast? Who are these people? Why do you have that weird dead look in your eyes? And they planned a mutiny until Cortez found out about it and had two of the leaders hanged. 
there was also a boat pilot involved. He was going to be the one to pilot the ship that went and told Velasquez what was going down. But that guy had skills, and you can't kill a guy with skills. Everybody knows that. So Cortez just had his feet cut off. To then prevent anybody else from trying to leave and snitch to Velasquez, Cortez had the ships that brought them over there sunk in the ocean. This guy is a bastard. Along the way to Tenochtitlan, the Spanish picked up two incredibly useful allies. There were the Tlaxcalans, who were the mortal enemies of the Aztecs, and they were not initially excited to join the Spanish, so to help instill a little fear and convince them to step up, Cortez had a bunch of them tied down and fired an arquebus near their ears, deafening them, and a bunch more of the Tlaxcalans fainted. So, now they're on board. Before the Tlaxcalans, though, there was another ally that helps explain how Cortez is communicating with everyone, how he has the insight into what the locals are thinking and doing, who the hell these Aztecs were. Soon after he landed in Mesoamerica, Cortez and his men were given a gift of 20 slave girls by the natives. One of these slaves was a young woman named Malinche, who was initially given or sold into slavery by her family, and she was given to merchants, so it gave her exposure to a bunch of different languages. Malinche spoke Nahuatl, she spoke the Mayan dialects, and now a slave of the Spanish, she quickly learned their language and became Cortez's chief translator, his negotiator, concubine, and eventually baby mama. And yes, he's still married to Catalina. Malinche was an incredibly useful translator and negotiator, and her services become invaluable when they continued toward Tenochtitlan and stopped in Cholula. This is the location of the Pulque mural and the giant pyramid. While the Spanish and the Tlaxcalans were dealing with the Cholulans, Malinche learned of an Aztec plot where the Cholulans were going to team up with the Aztecs and decimate the Spanish. There wasn't a whole lot of actual evidence to support this plot, though Cortez didn't really want to risk it, so he ordered an attack against the Cholulans. 6,000 of them were killed, the city was burned, and anything of value not nailed down was stolen. The march to Tenochtitlan, now only about 60 miles away, continued. Malinche is a complicated figure in Mexican history to say the least. She was viewed for a really long time as a traitor to her people and responsible for a lot of Spain's early successes. She was such a divisive figure that her name would eventually be the root word for the term Malinchista, a term to describe somebody who forsakes their own people and culture for a foreign culture that they see as more desirable. It's not a nice term. On the other hand, Malinche was a slave. She was given to Cortes like cattle and made the best of her situation. Being a female slave anywhere in 1519 is going to be unpleasant. There's even evidence to show that Malinche saved countless of lives by convincing Cortes to negotiate instead of murder. But she also really leaned into the job. She really took to it. So I don't know, man. If Mexico feels that strongly about her decision to turn it into a word that means cultural sellout, you kind of got to listen. But the good news is, we don't have to empathy shop this situation or compare. Both perspectives aren't mutually exclusive, and they're both true, and Cortez is a giant asshole. When Cortez and his men approached Tenochtitlan and crossed the causeway, they saw what was effectively a giant city floating on a lake. They saw gorgeous temples, markets, a lagoon. This was the Aztecs at their peak. One of the Spanish soldiers wrote years later that they saw, quote, 
thing so admirable that we could not tell if it was true what it seemed like ahead. We were amazed and said that it looked like enchanting things in a book, and some of our soldiers said that what they saw was between dreams, and it is no wonder that I write here in this way, because there is so much to ponder on. The Tenochtitlanian leader at the time was Moctezuma, who de facto ruled the alliance, and Moctezuma was aware of Cortez's shenanigans slash murder through his ambassadors and spies, and he eventually agreed to meet the Spanish. When they met, Cortez gave Moctezuma a diamond and pearl necklace, and Moctezuma gave Cortez a necklace of, quote, large golden shrimps. That's sort of what the vibe was between the two early on, a give a man some golden shrimps vibe. And for the next few days, the Spanish walked around Tenochtitlan, met with the locals, and they walked through palaces and temples. There was a narrative for a long time that Moctezuma was so in awe of the Spanish that as soon as he saw Cortez, he thought he was a god come back to life. That is some white people shit right there, to walk into a room and just assume everybody worships you. It's a very colonial narrative to show that the natives are savage idiots who need your help. It justifies what you're about to do. Moctezuma ran an empire. He had to deal with budgets and war strategies, bureaucratic infighting. He wasn't going to look at a white person and just fall apart. He was a tentative host, but he gave the Spanish quite a bit of freedom. They even got to attend an Aztec religious feast. It was during the festival of Toshkadal, and there was even a serpent dance. How cool must that have been to see after spending a lifetime sitting in a Catholic church? There was also a human sacrifice that the good Catholics did not want to see, so they started getting nervous. As the serpent dance got wilder and the drumming got crazier, it freaked the Spanish out and they thought there was going to be a revolt. Again, no evidence, so they blocked the exits and started attacking people, murdering thousands of people at the festival in the 1520 massacre in the Great Temple to stop the thing from happening that wasn't actually happening. The Spanish also decided that they needed to take Moctezuma prisoner for months, and when the Aztecs bitched about it, rightfully so, Moctezuma didn't want everybody to freak out and make it worse, so he said to relax and that he was voluntarily living with them, I guess like an impromptu cultural exchange. This, of course, backfired, because the Aztecs thought he turned into a malinchista. They learned that lesson real fast. Right about now, Diego Velasquez was getting quite annoyed at Cortez's antics because he hadn't come back in a really long time. So Velasquez sent 900 soldiers on a ship and they headed to Veracruz to see what was happening and to get this idiot under control. Cortez got his troops together along with some natives and they weren't sure what these new Spanish forces, what their intentions were. So Cortez snuck up and attacked his own friends, friends from his time on Cuba, and stabbed their leader in the eye with a pike. Is anybody else thinking about him as an evil 12-year-old right now? All I keep thinking about is a violent child general with armor that doesn't fit just running all over the place. Cortez took command of all the soldiers that were still alive and headed back to Tenochtitlan. This is a complete debacle. When this small army finally got back, Cortez went to parley with the Aztecs, and before battle, he told Moctezuma, who was still a Spanish prisoner, to tell the Aztecs not to resist, a, a cultural shh, just let it happen. But then Moctezuma got hit in the head with a rock from an Aztec warrior, and he died. So that wasn't really a strategic option anymore. The Aztec version of the story that I tend to believe because it's not the version told by the Spanish about a magic rock that totally wasn't their fault is that Moctezuma told the Aztecs to stand down and they said, absolutely not, our counteroffer is piss off. 
So not having anything more of value to offer, Cortez had Moctezuma strangled or stabbed to death. With negotiations broken down, Cortez completely underestimated the Aztecs during the battle, who fought off the Spanish to the point of almost wiping all of them out. And suffering an embarrassing and overwhelming defeat, Cortez and the surviving men had to run away in what the Spanish called La Noche Trista, the sad night. Oh, La Noche Trista. That is objectively not sad. That might be the happiest part of the story so far. Cortez then goes back and takes a lot of time to properly prepare for the attack. This was always the inevitable result. He just got impatient and didn't have enough troops, guns, crossbows, and siege equipment to do it. When Cortez came back to Tenochtitlan in April 1521, he brought with him a much larger force of around 100,000 natives to attack the city. This time, they actually had a chance, partly because they were actually prepared, but also because the smallpox they brought with them to Mesoamerica was devastating the native population. There was no evidence that smallpox was in the Americas before the Spanish, so nobody had natural immunities. It was an extremely contagious virus that caused blisters and a rash. Sometimes you got a tongue rash, a high fever, vomiting, blindness, and occasionally your entire body would hemorrhage. That was the real weapon brought by the Spanish. Diseases that would kill tens of millions of native people, leaving only a fraction. As the battle began, Cortez had the city cut off from the causeway so food couldn't be brought in. And he also broke the aqueduct so the city couldn't get fresh water, and then he swarmed the city. It was not an easy victory for Cortez. The Aztecs fought their asses off. The Spanish had large numbers of Aztec enemy natives on their side, siege weapons, cannons. It was obsidian blades, guns, clubs, swords, arrows flying everywhere. It was battle after battle getting to the center of the city. There were even massive water battles on the lake with canoes and boats. The fighting was day and night, destroying the city. It's estimated that upwards of 200,000 people died in these battles until the Aztecs finally surrendered on August 13, 1521. Not completely satisfied, Cortez then took a few of the city leaders and boiled their feet in oil. And yes, I'm still picturing an evil 12-year-old doing this. After the war, Cortez surveyed the city, what was left of the city, and decided that he needed to tear the rest of it down and make it a city for Spain. What will become Mexico City was rebuilt on the ruins of the Old World using Spanish architects and native labor. This was just step one, though. The Spanish then worked outward and conquered the subsidiary states of the Aztecs as well as their enemies. Nobody was safe. They murdered chiefs, enslaved the people, burned villages, looted basically everything, and when one Tarascan king didn't play ball like he was supposed to, the Spanish dragged him behind a horse until he could barely function and then burned him alive. As the conquistadors made their way through Mexico, slowly taking after city after city, as smallpox annihilated the native population, several more conquest missions were conducted as Spain made its way through the Mayans, the Incans, anyone who was in their way bringing disease with them. How's everybody doing? Everybody having fun? My friend said this show was funny. This is one of those times where it's good to step back and be present, not because it's good times, but just as a reminder that things do get fun again. It won't always be this much of a bummer. 
1521, what was Mesoamerica and its own developing civilization was given the name New Spain. Just like New Coke, it was a dumb name for a product that didn't need to exist. In Cortez, he was not given the title of the first viceroy of New Spain, which is the colonial ruler that's answerable only to the king because Cortez was an asshole that nobody trusted. In 1522, when things calmed down a bit, Cortez's wife Catalina came to New Spain only to find him having taken up with this new mistress. She was obviously displeased with the situation, but that stopped mattering as of November 1st, 1522. Catalina said something at a dinner party that night about the native people. We don't know what it was, something positive or negative either way, but we do know that Hernan disagreed with that statement, and that night he strangled her to death. He told everyone that she had a bad heart and she just died. I don't know what happened. She just stopped living. But there were constant rumors about his history with her and domestic violence. Imagine how bad domestic violence had to be for it to be well known in the 1520s. Also, when Catalina's body was seen by servants, they saw bruises on her neck. He was initially charged, but the charges were dropped. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Now we have two distinct groups of people living in New Spain. You have the Spanish and the indigenous Amerindians, the indigenous people that were left, that is. There was also the beginning of what will be called mestizos, meaning people of mixed Spanish and native ancestry, one of the first, awkwardly, being Cortez and Malinchista's love child. All in all, in Mexico, there would end up being an estimated 9 million indigenous people that will die a violent death or death from smallpox brought by the Spanish. The takeover of Mesoamerica was not just militaristic. It was cultural, biological, religious, architectural and artistic, and above all else, economic. When Cortes destroyed Tenochtitlan, the city was receiving from all areas of the Aztec Empire 4,000 tons of beans, chia seeds, and amaranth, 7,000 tons of maize, gold, amber, war costumes, shields, and over 2 million cotton cloaks per year. That's not that much, really. Yeah, really. Let's get out of here. <laughs> With this bountiful setup ready-made for them, the Spanish began to set up their expansive colony, and they spread out. At its very height, New Spain spread south through Central America and into South America. It went north into North America, way past current-day New Mexico and Arizona, and covered really from the Midwest of Kansas, Oklahoma, all the way west into California and as north as far as Oregon. The purpose of New Spain, the only reason for its existence, was to operate under the colonial concept of mercantilism. This wasn't a unique concept to Spain. The other colonial powers will do this. The British, the Dutch, the French, the Spanish just did it really, really well. The idea of mercantilism is that the colony exists solely for the benefit of the mother country. You couldn't completely ignore social and cultural elements, which we'll get to, but profit for the mother country was the primary goal. It just so happens that if you slowly move the indigenous people to your religious and social customs, it really helps lube up those profits. Throughout the 16th century, Spanish people flooded the new colony, mostly light-skinned Catholics. Spain had recently, with the support of the Catholic Church, gone through a bit of a cleansing of the Iberian Peninsula of people who were Jewish or Muslim during a period called the Reconquista. 
it was the recapturing of Spain and Portugal for that old-school Catholic blood, people who also happened to be lighter-skinned. It's a process that was grossly named the limpieza de sangre, blood cleanliness, and the Spanish wanted that blood purity to continue in the New World. That meant if you wanted to go over to New Spain, you had to be a long-standing Catholic and also be lighter-skinned, because if you were lighter-skinned, you were less likely to be a, quote, crypto-Jew, meaning a secretly practicing Jewish person. If you were brown, well, that just meant you were more likely to be a Moor, and the Moorish people were also kicked out of New Spain. They couldn't have that in New Spain. No more brown people. The Spanish that came to this new world weren't just wealthy royalty, though. A lot of them were working-class people. They just weren't laborers. Many of the Spanish that came over were often merchants, miners, lawyers, teachers, physicians. A lot of the physical laborers in Spain wouldn't come over because it wasn't worth the risk of death for the long shot of upward mobility. This is the beginning of the cultural divide between the lighter-skinned Spanish being in the more white-collar professions and prestigious professions that pay more and the darker-skinned native people working more manual labor. That manual labor is going to be pretty problematic because at this point, a significant portion of the native people were in one form of slavery or another. There was the pure form of slavery, people who were treated like property, uh, both slaves that were brought to New Spain from the Caribbean and Africa, as well as enslavement of the Amerindians, but that didn't take hold as pervasively as it did in America. Instead, the more common form of slavery was a bit more complicated and facially a little more acceptable to the Spanish, even though it was still shitty and still slavery. First, Spain determined that there would be a system called repartimiento. That was a system where every native adult male was required to work 45 days a year for the Spanish. They were paid, mostly, but it was still required, a.k.a. slavery. The more entrepreneurial Spanish developed what would be the dominant form of servitude, which was when the Spanish would give the native people advanced pay and then have them work off that debt. Anything they needed, such as supplies, food, things like that, could of course be bought at the now Spanish-run stores, and native people would be advanced so much money that they would never be able to pay off that debt, making them indentured to their Spanish employers forever. On top of that, the Spanish would often screw the native people out of their wages and work them to upwards of 12 hours a day, many of the native people working to exhaustion and some of them death. This was the real economic value of New Spain, a cheap and uninterrupted labor force that could make the economic chain of goods flowing from the colony to Spain even more profitable. It's labor that produced cloth for textiles, corn, valuable dyes from the indigo plant, a red dye called conchineal, vanilla, cacao. Holy shit, could you imagine what happened when Europeans discovered chocolate? It's not good. Ranching and livestock, heads of animals 150,000 deep, cattle, sheep, wool from the sheep. All of this was being pulled from New Spain for the profit of Old Spain, or I guess just regular Spain. Also, silver. Shitloads of silver. Everybody always talks about the Aztec gold fueling Spain. And there was gold, a lot of gold, but there was a ton of silver. But this wasn't all economic. As much as Spain wanted wealth, the Spanish crown and the Catholic church were so intertwined that this was a huge opportunity for the church to spread their beliefs in this new world. The conquistadors were, ironically, or maybe not ironically, very devout Catholics, and there was part of this that was about spreading Catholicism and Jesus to these polytheistic savages who worshipped idols that weren't Jesus. 
The religious conquest took place more or less simultaneously with the economic and cultural conquest, and the takeover of New Spain was thought to be a divine conquest by God. And if you listen to Caravaggio, you'll be shocked to hear me say this. Thank God for the Catholic Church, because when the church got to New Spain, they sucked way less than the rest of the Spanish. The church began to build monasteries and churches, and they also started to establish their own presence in New Spain, and they weren't exactly on board with what the secular colonists were doing to the native people. The church kind of thought the colonists were assholes, and while they were slowly converting the native people, who didn't even speak the same language, they didn't know Spanish, they knew Nahuatl, the church protected the native people a lot of times from the abuse of the Spanish, and they would often step in and serve as a buffer between the colonists and the native people. The church also served as a viable economic path because it was easier to become a priest than it was a lawyer, so it became a great way for people to not starve to death. And while that's great, Catholicism was pushed on all of the natives and their own rituals were prohibited. That 260-day calendar system and the Tresinas, those celebrations were not allowed to be conducted publicly. People were still interested in those Aztec traditions, but it was more of an academic and intellectual curiosity, and they would have the Amerindians document their history and traditions in a bound text called a codex. I'll put up an example of a codex. It was a combination of pictorial and text. It kind of looks like a comic book, and I know that's a degrading analogy, but it's the best I've got right now. Things that were previously religious but still valuable or desirable to everyone, including the Spanish themselves, they were still allowed. It was just now secular. Which brings us back to pulque, the fermented sap of the maguey plant, which was considered to be the blood of Mayawel, the goddess of the maguey plant, and fertility and nourishment, and also, not to put too fine a point on it, looks like a giant glass of cum. I recently tried it in Mexico, and as soon as they put the mug down, I immediately had flashbacks to that horse cum story from when I was a kid that I told in, I don't know, one of these episodes, a memory that I clearly have not processed and I'm not over yet. Pulque would no longer be a religious drink because Catholicism was the religion of Spain now, and it was ingrained in every aspect of life. This is all the stuff about Catholic Europe from the last series except now it's in Mesoamerica. We can't continue to have some ridiculous belief that pulque is the blood of Mayahuel. That's just the foolish understandings of savage people. Instead, we're going to have Catholicism, where the sacramental red wine is the literal transubstantiated blood of Jesus. Pulque was secularized and was now available for consumption by everybody, so long as, you guessed it, you paid the proper tax. Pulque houses popped up all over the place, and sales started to become one of the more predominant sources of wealth for Spain within the colony. It also had a very negative connotation. It was the dirty native person drink compared to the perceived elevated alcohol of red wine. It became a stereotype that native peoples were said to be prone to pulque abuse and public drunkenness, so they were both taxed for their cultural drink, but then also it was turned into a tool to identify them as lower class. Everything else in the colony was now dominated by the Spanish. Architecture, art, music, Spanish composed classical music, especially Catholic and religious music, became not just the more common form of music, but it also became a way to convert native people. Music became the way to get around the language barrier and get the native people excited about Jesus, even if they didn't really understand who Jesus was. And what started with native flutes began to incorporate European instruments as they were shipped over. Clarinets, lutes, violins, guitars, bassoons, all that stuff. Also being shipped over in the 1600s, only a bit north, other Europeans. 
The French had a presence in Canada, then called New France, the Dutch were poking around, and the English settlers were cementing a footprint in what will become another ticking clock for Mexico. America. We'll periodically check in and keep track of this new ticking clock. Life in New Spain, just how good the daily life was, was dependent on how Spanish you were versus how native. The Spanish had better access to food, better education, they wore more expensive clothing, and in the capital they would ride around in these horse-drawn coaches, often trimmed in silver, gold, and Chinese silk. For native people, I'd like to quote from that 1983 Course of Mexican History book, partly to show how difficult it is to research Mexican history written in English. And granted, some of the books were great for raw information, timelines, dates, but from a characterization standpoint, there were some phrasings and perspectives that don't tend to age well. Of daily life for native peoples in the colony of New Spain, quote, The poverty, ugliness, injustices, and the general misery of the lower classes notwithstanding, colonial life was not a scene of unrelieved tragedy. It was indeed close to that for most of the Indians throughout the 16th century, but thereafter conditions eased somewhat. And while the daily routine of peasants in the provinces was mostly drudgery, urban life was more exciting, unquote. So from 1600 on, apparently there was some sort of relief from utter tragedy and misery, but only really in the cities, and you should be thankful for that. Surprisingly, people were not actually thankful for being treated like human garbage and they fought back. Whatever policy or societal changes that occurred weren't given out out of the goodness of the colonialist heart, they were demanded. There was one event that historians call, quote, the 1624 Tumult of Mexico. That was kicked off because the viceroys were such assholes that Spain was forced to enact some sort of reforms, reforms elevating the life of native peoples to not unrelieved tragedy. Calling it a tumult is a very haughty colonialist phrasing. It was a riot and people were pissed and they no longer wanted to live in general misery, but it wasn't yet a full attack on the idea of Spain being in control. Since the initial conquering of Tenochtitlan and all the subsequent colonialization, something crazy happened that the Spanish couldn't control. The indigenous people, the Spanish, second generation and beyond of Spanish descent called Criollos, Caribbean people, black folks from Africa, they all started to do some crazy shit like have kids with each other for reasons like, I don't know, love of another human being regardless of race, thinking another person might make a good co-parent even though they have a different skin color, or even just raw physical attraction and forgetting to pull out. <laughs> we, don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. New Spain started to become a place of a wide blend of skin tones instead of just the darker-skinned native people and the white Europeans. One of the things that people would comment on when they visited was the color, not just the bright colors of the marketplaces because of the wide variety of fruits and vegetables, the wildly colored clothing from all the dyes, but the people. Europeans were amazed. They were like, look at all these beige people. That excitement was almost purely academic amazement, though, as everyone of a darker-skinned class, the mestizos, the mixed, or darker, were set up into a caste system, or castas, that identified people's social and economic value and viability through their casta. Some of the more, if it's not on paper, then it didn't happen historians will point out that there was no official casta system in New Spain. And that's a cool story, bro, but that doesn't mean it didn't functionally and operationally exist. 
For a system that didn't officially exist, the Costas just so happened to have names and they were also categorized by what kind of pulque they drank. Las Costas Bajas, the lower classes, that's a cute name, they were made up of Los Indios, Mestizos, and La Gente de Color Quebrado. I think I got that right. And those were the classes that were said to be engaging in pulque abuse, and they were stereotyped as drinkers of darker pulque, which was the traditional Mesoamerican recipe that contained medicinal herbs and roots, and it also increased the strength of the pulque. The white upper-class Europeans, if they drank pulque at all and not just wine, they drank White pulque, which didn't contain the medicinal herbs and roots, was less alcoholic and was thought to be more appropriate to drink than the barbaric Indians who drank their dark pulque, and they were stereotyped as being constantly drunk in public and useless. The Spanish were getting filthy rich taxing the darker pulque while simultaneously shitting all over and demeaning the cultural heritage of the people who drank it. And you know what? The so-called Las Costas Bajas, they really were getting hammered on the darker pulque. My guess is because of a systemic socioeconomic system that was said to have gotten better because it was no longer unrelieved tragedy. And the Spanish people, they were getting shithouse hammered on red wine. We just spent nine hours talking about people getting red wine drunk and blowing each other at parties thrown by cardinals in Rome. This feels like a bit of a manufactured outrage. But even the mere existence of pulque, it still pissed the Spanish off, and it frustrated the church because they knew the Indios were still secretly following their pre-Columbian traditions, and darker pulque was seen as a form of idolatry. The answer? More taxes. More characterization of darker pulque as the devil's drink of drunken savages that was the driving force behind crime? This is white people in the 90s freaking out over malt liquor. And this all came to a head at the close of the 17th century when in 1692, Las Castas Bajas finally lost it. There had been minor pulque-related conflicts before, but this time it was a full-blown main event called the Pulque Rebellion. Rioters tore through the streets of Mexico City for almost three hours, destroying the city plaza, setting fires to Spanish government property, and they were shouting, quote, Long live pulque! Death to the Spaniards! death to bad government. It was a no taxation without representation Boston Tea Party situation, except that it wasn't powdery-wigged white douchebags against other powdery-wigged white douchebags. This was a culture that had millions of its people killed. Everyone was still being a dick, and they were really mad about it. After the riots finally died down, the only thing that happened was the church and colonial government got together and they decided it was pulque that was the problem, not that it was a symbol for a greater discontent, and they banned the darker pulque and limited the number of pulque shops that could be licensed to only 36. Spain wasn't going to give up control that easily. A massive overhaul of social injustices that would impact profits? That would never be the result, but that didn't really matter, though. This will be a running theme moving forward. Even when Mexico really isn't in a position to win a battle or a fight, and there will be a bunch of them, they're still going to fight because they're tired of taking other countries' nonsense. And that nonsense and meddling of other countries, it won't be restricted to just Spain. In the late 17th century, Charles II inherited the Spanish crown at four years old. His nickname was, quote, El Hechizado, the Bewitched King, because he, he was, uh, and I feel bad about this because I know I'm going to laugh in a little bit and I shouldn't laugh, because Charles II is one of the more low-key tragic figures in European history, and I'm still going to laugh and I apologize. 
polite historians called him things like, quote, feeble in mind as well as body and was, even in maturity, incompetent to rule, unquote. Charles II was the last heir of the Habsburg dynasty in Spain. The Habsburgs were one of the most powerful and dominant powers in the entire continent for centuries. This is the Holy Roman Empire family. They maintained their power over Spain and so much of Europe for so long, in part because of a really deep commitment to royal inbreeding in order to help keep succession issues clearer, ensure stronger treaties and alliances. And I know I said in Rome in 1100 or whenever, was accidentally having sex with your own cousin-level population. Here it was basically a requirement. El Hechizado was, why don't you just go ahead and Google image search Charles II of Spain. He was incredibly inbred and had some issues, and instead of, you know, somewhat dealing with the issues of this four-year-old who would assume the crown, they kept giving him exorcisms to drive out what they thought were his demons. And poor El Hechizado, he was super bummed with this entire situation that he didn't ask for, the constant exorcisms, so he kept trying to hang himself with his own pajamas, with his own PJs. And look, I know I'm not supposed to be laughing, and I feel bad for laughing. This poor guy needed support and a bit of an extra hand to make sure that he maximized his happiness and his own potential. Instead, they tried to make El Hechizado the king of Europe and ask him to opine on the royal treasury and trade disputes with other countries, and he probably just wanted to play with blocks and stuff. Charles II never had children, thank God, possibly because his first wife, Marie-Louise d'Orléans, who was also his niece, I believe, it gets a little squirrely, and they clearly weren't learning. She thought he was incredibly unattractive, as he was said to be, quote, so ugly as to cause fear. There was quite a bit happening here. El Hachizado's head was giant and his jaw was huge and his tongue was too big for his mouth so he couldn't chew his own food well and he couldn't read and people around him wouldn't let him walk until he was an adult. Throw in the fact that that's your uncle, that's a lady boner killer right there. That's valid. You can walk away from that one. His second wife, she actually tried to take one for the team, but Charles II was also quite impotent and almost certainly infertile and he died at 38 years old with no children. His autopsy revealed, and now this is just getting gratuitous, a body that, quote, did not contain a single drop of blood, his heart was the size of a peppercorn, his lungs corroded, his intestines rotten and gangrenous, he had a single testicle, black as coal, and his head was full of water, unquote. You're not really supposed to call somebody a waterhead anymore, but he was, a, I mean, he had a little hydrocephalus, which in adults, I mean, and you can see from the pictures, that's pretty obvious, which in adults can cause the loss of coordination, cognitive difficulties, impaired vision, and incontinence. And I don't really believe that he had one cold black nut and a peppercorn heart, but I do believe the water, uh, the hydrocephaly part. This poor bastard really didn't need to be king of Spain. I actually feel bad about this whole situation, even though Charles II's sad life will knock over an inbred house of cards that will free New Spain from the mother country. Through a weird marriage and alliance system that was happening in Europe in a way that I honestly couldn't quite keep track of, the Spanish crown, left without an heir, took a lateral detour and fell to Philip V, or as he's known to his people, Philippe de Sonc. This guy was Frencher than Gerard Depardieu smoking a cigarette with that little plastic mouth thing and holding a baguette while having a menage a trois with two mimes underneath the Eiffel Tower. Sacre bleu. 
yeah, this story's about to get really French for a while. I had no idea how intertwined the histories of France and Mexico were. New Spain was still filthy rich at the 1% and crazy poor and disenfranchised at the 99%. The difference now was that there were more powdery wig douchebags in the cities. The fashion in Mexico City turned very French. The music was French. And yeah, for sure, I included all that stuff about the waterhead guy who tried to hang himself with his own pajamas because I might not be a nice person and it made me giggle. That's part of it. But the medley, the melange of extraneous, borderline mean-spirited, and kind of hilarious details aside, the actual reason to talk about Charles II is because it's the moment when France begins to have an influence in Mexico, and why they keep popping their heads in, uninvited to say hello, over the next 200 years. Philippe de Sonque. He was part of the Bourbon dynasty in France, and he inherited a Spanish kingdom that, I mean, we haven't really talked about Spain itself in a bit. Spain was sort of a disaster at this point. Culturally, financially, politically, things weren't going swimmingly. Not shocking considering who the king was for the past 34 years. Believe me, I get it, three years can feel like a hundred. Even though Spain was receiving all that pulque money from Mexico, trade goods from the Philippines, all their other colonies, they had been incredibly overextended as a country. The famous Spanish Armada that was once over 30 warships and 160 armed merchant vessels, through budget issues and war, that had been reduced to about 20 ships. The standing military was in shambles and was hemorrhaging cash from foreign wars, and there were internal social and political revolts. To try to get these things back on track somewhat, Philippe, he looked to the colonies and determined that if he could streamline the colonial process, he could reduce both fraud and costs and just increase his rate of return. In order to resuscitate those colonial profits, Philippe instituted the Bourbon reforms, which gave New Spain way more self-sufficiency. Trade was loosened up and New Spain was able to have more flexible trading liberties. A standing military was allowed to be created in order to protect the northern borders of New Spain from the native peoples who didn't really take too kindly to all these new people. Philippe de Sonque's Bourbon reform set the stage for New Spain's functioning as an independent entity who didn't need the mother country as much anymore. They had an army to protect themselves, economic flexibility. It was starting to cement the area as its own identity. New Spain is also developing its own history, its own collection of shared experiences. It's been hundreds of years, and they were starting to manifest in art as an expression of those distinct experiences. There's a series of paintings called The Conquest of Mexico that were painted by a bunch of unknown artists at the end of the century. I'll post the meeting of Cortez and Moctezuma, but they're all pretty cool. This painting is a dramatic rendition of the meeting and is almost certainly not how the meeting went down. It's also kinda racist. The clothing and weapons worn by the Aztecs in this painting weren't at all historically accurate, but they were made up that way to create an iconography of the natives for people in Europe to understand. Understand what? I don't know, because it's not a real thing, but regardless of the inaccuracy of the details, it's a scene that's uniquely Mexican. It's not Mexico yet, but it's not a Catholic image that was imported from Europe or a historical painting about somebody else's history. Knowing what we know now about Cortez and the Aztecs and where the Aztecs came from, this painting means way more to me now. And that's just from like 90 minutes of passively chatting about stuff with poop jokes. You can see how this painting elicits a lot of feelings if that's your history. A very complicated cultural history. 
This painting is exactly why I wanted us to get a little bit more Mexican before we start Frida's story. There's so much here, and the amount of people willing to die over this history and the art that captures this spirit, it's intense, and so many more people are going to die. On a fun note, though, art in New Spain also developed into an export product in its own form of souvenir. People in Europe were still fascinated by the blend of ethnicities and cultures in New Spain, and a type of painting evolved at the time called Costa paintings. Costa paintings were comprised of 16 smaller genre images of colonial families, all the varieties of family types you could have in New Spain from the various cultures and ethnicities, and I'll post an example for this episode. They're uncomfortable to look at after you take a second to digest what's happening. At first glance, you want to say it's a celebration of diversity, but then you start to feel like it's more of a quasi-racist fascination. A lot of these Costa paintings were created in Mexico but ended up in Europe. These were souvenirs that identified stereotypes rather than reality. It was the, the same issue as the meeting of Cortes and Moctezuma. Each combination of family within their own square had its own cartoonish representation that set the narrative for what the quote-unquote reality was. The lighter-skinned and pure Criollo families, they'd be showed as wealthy and vibrant, and as you got down to the darker families, they were portrayed a little bit more shabbily. A common theme for these paintings, which was delightful to see, was to show the Amerindians as public drunks, and they'd be shown to be drinking pulque in those sections. Pulque went from being a drink of the gods and the focal point of murals in public places to be shown off to everybody, to being a racist dog whistle in souvenir art. For now, all of this is going to come roaring back, both pulque and murals. The Bourbon reforms may have been a macro change in the colonial economy, but the everyday life didn't change for most of the people in the economy. The indigenous people, it was still bad, and one year in the latter part of the 19th century, 300,000 indigenous people died of starvation or illnesses caused by malnourishment. In the northern areas of New Spain, there was also a new form of indentured servitude. There were these incredibly large haciendas that were thousands of acres large, and they were mostly run by the Criollo, the Spanish-descended rich families, and worked by the indigenous people. As much as that sounds great for the rich people, again, this was a period of time in Mexico when almost everybody was unhappy, even the rich people. The Bourbon reforms couldn't solve what was the inevitable. As much as I would love to say that the Amerindians that descended from the Mesoamericans rose up and were the ones to drive the Spanish out, but that's, that's just not the case. They didn't have the structural and financial support to do it. Mexican independence from Spain was driven, sadly, quite a bit by the Criollos, who were upset with this present situation. The Bourbon reforms included more local administration, so rich people had a harder time skimming off the top. This is also when revolution is spreading throughout Europe as the Age of Enlightenment was at its doorstep and it's impacting the colonies all over the world. On July 4th, 1776, America. America, America. Then the French have their independence, which was insane, and that affects their colonies. And soon after that, in 1808, Napoleon Bonaparte invaded Spain. After that point, if you're New Spain, I mean, even after the Bourbons took over, you're not even really dealing with old Spain anymore. You were dealing with beret-wearing mime orgy specialist Gerard Depardieu, that situation. There's no cultural connection there. 
The independence of Mexico from Spain began with Medel Hidalgo's revolt on September 16, 1810. And then General Santa Ana pops up and he's a key military leader. We're going to talk a lot about that guy later. And we really don't have enough time to go into the entire Mexican War for Independence because it lasts from 1810 until Mexico formally establishes itself as separate from the Spanish Empire in 1821. It was an incredibly long and grueling war full of guerrilla warfare. But New Spain is now the Mexican Empire and they started out super poor. After the Declaration of Independence, the rich Spanish people, they knew what time it was and they took the opportunity to get the hell out of town and with a significant amount of the nation's wealth. And on top of that, the war decimated a ton of the country. The Spanish troops destroyed fields, stole crops, killed sheep and cattle, and many of the hacendados were killed in rural areas and the haciendos were burned down. Bank interest rates are out of control. It was terrible. Who cares, though? As terrible as the situation was, figuring out the government is something that at least is now solely in the hands of the Mexican people. The Mexican Empire's flag, it's an eagle on a cactus standing on a rock with red, white, and green stripes, a flag layout that we still see today. So no matter what happens now through the hard times, the leadership corruption, it's at least Mexico. Even the music is developing into something distinctly Mexican, incorporating Mexican folklore with Caribbean and Afro-Cuban beats with European string instruments, and this will evolve into Mexican son and mariachi music. The Mexican Empire, which encompassed most of the geographic region of former New Spain, all the way up through Mexico to Texas, California, it didn't last long, and it needed to be reorganized into the first Mexican Republic, which lasted from 1824 to 1833. The main thing we need to know about all of these transitions from empires to republics is that for the majority of the poor people, they just remained poor. You can't have a socioeconomic system set in place for 300 years and expect it to change immediately. The one who will eventually centralize the Mexican government and start to at least somewhat get things on track is a hot mess of a person that I kinda love even though he's a disaster, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana Perez de Lebron, one of the generals during the Mexican War for Independence. In 1833, Santa Ana becomes the president of Mexico, and Santa Ana will go on to serve as the president of Mexico on 11 different occasions, intermittently getting exiled, accused of bribery, extortion, creating fraudulent government contracts. He's a complicated figure. Santa Ana was incredibly conservative and almost right away created a centralized state and demanded absolute power in 1834. Before this, Mexican presidents were referred to as His Excellency, but Santa Ana wanted to be referred to as His Most Serene Highness. He named theaters after himself, had statues of himself built, and had artillery fire and a 21-gun salute announce his arrival every place he went. The emergence of Mexico doesn't mean other countries won't keep messing with them, and Mexico is about to lose a ton of territory. The region that currently constitutes Texas was still a part of Mexico at this point, but it wasn't just populated with Mexican nationals. There were now a lot of Americans. America's push westward in the 19th century was fueled by what we called Manifest Destiny, a perceived absolute right to westward territorial expansion, resulting in the deaths of untold millions of Native Americans, as well as the Chinese immigrants who were constantly exploded with dynamite while building our railroads. 
With that westward expansion and sense of entitlement, Texas was flooded with Americans, and that area kind of lost its connection with Mexico. The waters got a little diluted. And Texas was next-level independent. Some things never change, and they didn't want to be held hostage by His Most Serene Highness Santa Ana's centralized form of government, and they declared their independence in 1835. Santa Ana told Texas tough shit and marched north to fight to regain control. He then lost the Battle of the Alamo and slaughtered 342 Texas prisoners, which was a terrible idea because Texans lost their minds and beat Mexico and became independent in 1836, but will soon find themselves part of America. When Santa Ana withdrew his troops, he crossed the Rio Grande River for some reason, and then Texas used the I licked it so it's my last slice of pizza argument and said that now the border of Texas is the Rio Grande, regardless of the fact that they had no legal right to it. Santa Ana was then exiled from Mexico because he screwed up basically everything he did after he seized power. But he's not done yet. I think one of the reasons, and I could be totally wrong about this, why Santa Ana is celebrated in Mexican history is because he just keeps trying. It's not because he's pretty corrupt and enriched himself at every turn, which he did. There's just this vibe about Santa Ana, that even when a battle will for sure be lost, he will fight for glory and fight for Mexico, and after hundreds and hundreds of years of feeling like nobody will fight for you, fight for Mexicanidad, Santa Ana will fight, and he will mess everything up and he will lose you Texas, but he will always be there and he's about to get another chance. Mexico did not at all ask for Santa Ana right now, but he voluntarily came back from exile and he just shows up ready to throw down when the French start some shit for the first time in the 19th century, things were about to get real French again. An independent Mexico had been establishing trade agreements with other countries, you know, as you do, Great Britain and the U.S. being the largest as of the 1830s, but there wasn't yet a formal trade agreement in place with France. There were trade and diplomatic relations with France, but no formal trade agreement, so France thought they were getting cheated because of higher taxes on trade items, and they were not happy with Mexico. Then in 1832, something happened that France could not stand by and take. The Mexican military, they had some officers that were in a pastry shop owned by a Monsieur Remonté, and they ate a bunch of pastries and caused damage to the store, about a thousand pesos worth of damage. Monsieur Remonté then demanded 60,000 pesos to pay for the damage, a demand that made its way all the way up to the French leadership in 1838. The government of France then demanded that Mexico pay them 600,000 pesos, which at the time, they might as well have said infinity pesos. There was no way Mexico was going to pay that much, which was kind of the point. It was an excuse for war. Mexico's President Bustamante told the French politely where they could stick their infinity pesos, so the French sent a bunch of ships to Mexico, blockaded Veracruz, and then captured the city. That's when Santa Ana came out of retirement slash exile without being asked, went to Veracruz to battle the French over pastries and what will be known as the Pastry War. Santa Ana valiantly fought and again valiantly lost, but not just the battle, he also lost a leg which was blown off by a cannon. To end the war, the French demanded Mexico sign a treaty that said they owed 600,000 pesos, which they never ended up paying because screw you, and Santa Ana buried his leg at his hacienda in Veracruz. 
He was given a prosthetic leg to replace the one he buried, and when he ran for president again a few years later, during speeches he would take off his fake leg and wave it around to show you how much he gave for Mexico. And after he won the presidency, again, His Most Serene Highness Santa Ana had the original, now decomposing leg exhumed from the ground and marched through the streets of Mexico City. It was a rousing parade for the heroic leg, accompanied by the army, his presidential bodyguards, the Chapultepec Military Academy, until it could be given a decomposing leg of full military funeral. At the site of the funeral in Mexico City, his entire cabinet was there, along with the Mexican Congress, the Diplomatic Corps, and there were songs and poems and speeches given, and cannons were shot at a leg funeral and I think he becomes president like eight or nine more times. Things are normal again, and Mexico is chugging ahead. This is fantastic. Santa Ana's got a presidency and a leg. For now, he has both for now. And a few years later in 1846, guess who's back? America. Then-President James Polk decided he wanted to keep going with that manifest destiny thing, and he sent someone to Mexico to offer to buy the Santa Fe Nuevo Mexico and the Alta California territories. And I am terrible with geography, but we're talking about what looks like the entire southwestern 20% of the current United States and about half of Mexico at that time, for a grand total of a $3 million debt forgiveness for damage caused by the whole Texas debacle, and on the high end of what could be negotiated, $30 million. For, we're talking somewhere in the world of 650,000 acres of land. It's a rough estimate, but it's not a crazy one. In exchange for this amount of land, America was going to pay Mexico basically $11, 83 lemon Skittles because they're the worst flavor, and fingerless gloves to pick up dog poop. Mexico took a quick break from the, no joke, 16 finance ministers, six defense ministers, and four presidents that it was going through that year alone. They took a break from that mess to politely decline this offer. Then Mexico starts to disappointingly shake its head and slowly roll up its sleeves for the scrap that they know is coming. They've seen this movie before. This is just like the pastry war over infinity pesos. This was a bullshit offer and 100% a warning that a war is coming. And you know what? Fine. Let's go to war. Everybody's been using us like it. I don't know why it's us now, but Mexico, I will be your adopted Blanquito son. Everybody's been using Mexico like an ATM, and they are done taking people's nonsense, especially not in exchange for the equivalent of a hobo bindle full of lemon Skittles. America found its excuse for war when a battalion of its soldiers just happened to wander aimlessly onto a heavily disputed territory north of the Rio Grande River, the area that was still in dispute with Texas. There were about 5,000 Mexican soldiers in that area, and then-commander and future president Zachary Taylor sent Captain Seth Thornton to go investigate, go check that thing out down by the river over there with 80 people. I am not a military historian, and this is wild speculation with no evidentiary support, but it definitely sounds like Zachary Taylor sent those 80 troops down to the Rio Grande River for the sole purpose of being attacked. And what do you know? Mexico pounced on this armed, not big enough group to make a difference, but not small enough to think that it's a bunch of idiots that got lost, that size group of soldiers, and killed them in what will be called the Thornton Affair, and America declared war on Mexico. 
The Mexican-American War kicked off, and an exhausted Mexico picked up their overstock and outdated muskets from the Napoleonic War and took time out of their infighting and went to war behind the only general who I'd want to lead Mexico's army purely for comedic purposes only. It's General Santa Ana. He's no longer president. He was exiled to Cuba for some reason. I didn't look up why it was late and I was super tired. I mean, come on, Santa Ana will be president like six or seven more times. He did something stupid and got exiled. Who cares? Santa Ana takes control of the Mexican army, declares himself president again, I love this guy, and rides to war with America. As Santa Ana rode to fight a land battle, America sailed its navy down to Veracruz. They then proceeded to launch a mortar attack of 6,700 shells against the city for over 48 hours. They refused to let non-combatants, women, and children leave, and a lot of people died. Santa Ana then turns around, comes back down to Veracruz, and he fights the Americans in the Battle of Cerro Gordo and loses. And at some point, you can have the fight in you, but you're just wasting human lives. And with America occupying Mexico City, Mexico signed, while under the barrel of a gun, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, giving up all the land they initially refused to sell in exchange for $18 million, way less than President Polk was willing to buy it for. Before leaving, America took one more thing. They stole Santa Ana's leg. At the end of the Battle of Cerro Gordo, the 4th Regiment of the Illinois Volunteer Infantry stole Santa Ana's fake leg while he was eating a delicious lunch of roast chicken and brought the leg back to Illinois where you can still visit it to this day. You can also visit what I believe is the subsequent replacement fake leg of Santa Ana at the National Museum of Anthropology in Mexico City after walking up a very, very long and steep hill. I was just there a few weeks ago, and I'll post a picture of the fake leg. I was very excited when I saw it. When the Americans left, Mexico is now the geographic territory that we know today, and Santa Ana wasn't the president because he got exiled to Jamaica. There was relative calm in Mexico for not that long, until the French, supported by the British and Spanish, said that Mexico owed everyone money, including the pastry war reparations that were never paid. France was coming back to Mexico to collect the debts that everyone was owed, and also some French guy who made boots, he also got robbed. That was a weird sticking point in all of this, and the French were mad about that. In what I'm sure can't be a surprise at this point, the French invaded Mexico through Veracruz in 1861, and we have another war. By 1876, six years after it started, Mexico City is taken by the French, and then they establish the Second Mexican Empire and put in a puppet emperor named Maximilian, or Maximilian. For Mexico, the shining light of the war comes on May 5, 1862. Mexico kicks the ever-loving shit out of the French army at the Battle of Puebla, in a battle they were supposed to lose handedly, and that's where we get Cinco de Mayo from. I always thought it was from their independence from Spain or a declaration of independence. Not a surprise, I was wrong because I don't know anything. Instead, Cinco de Mayo is a day to celebrate a random battle that Mexico didn't ask for, wasn't supposed to win, and they did, outnumbered with inferior weapons. It didn't really change the course of the war. France still won. But that didn't matter. They were always going to lose. It wasn't about the outcome. Cinco de Mayo was an announcement to the world that even outgunned and ganged up on, Mexico could still beat you. So think twice before starting some shit. 
In America, we celebrate this day of underdog pride and accomplishment like we celebrate other people's cultural holidays like St. Patrick's Day. By dressing up in costume in a bizarre show of cultural appropriation, getting ripshit drunk, and throwing up in the street. America. The second Mexican empire failed pretty quickly. Mexico was not going to allow itself to be led by a French guy named Maximilian and he was executed in 1867 after Porfirio Diaz came to power. Porfirio Diaz was president for a few years and then stepped down. He comes back into power in 1884, and he doesn't leave for an incredibly long time. An incredibly long time. I'm going to say, uh, I mean, a few nice things about Porfirio Diaz. I think it's nice to do, and I think it's polite, and after that, not so much. Positive item number one. He had a spectacular mustache. It was huge and full, and it only got more impressive with age. Positive item number two. He was oddly partly responsible for the creation of modern-day jazz. In 1884, New Orleans held the World Industrial and Cotton Centennial Exposition, where cotton producers came from across the globe to for sure say racist things and also talk about cotton. Porfirio Diaz decided that the Mexican Cavalry Band from the 8th Regiment should go as a cultural attaché. This is a band that played music that evolved in Mexico, not just from Spanish and Mexica influences, but also Caribbean and African beats like the Mexican Sone music. This style mixed perfectly with music in New Orleans that was evolving from African and Caribbean foundations like Haitian voodoo music. And the Mexican Cavalry Band, they introduced musicians there to the clarinet sound, and they ended up being a major contributor to modern-day jazz. A large number of early jazz stars were even Mexican. I don't like jazz, really, at all. I just don't get it, but that's pretty cool. And that's, that's about all I have to say positive about Porfirio Diaz. Some historians will characterize him as being the modernizer of Mexico, as this was the time of industrialization in Mexico that mirrored the Industrial Revolution in other parts of the world, and Diaz was president during most of it. Another perspective is that Mexico was modernizing and industrializing anyway, and Porfirio Diaz ran the country like an autocrat, took credit for all of it, and that industrialization in Mexico would have been better off and more spread out amongst the people, but for his existence, and he sucked. Diaz ran sham elections, he suppressed the press, put people in government positions for political expediency, and to ensure he remained in power, even though they were not qualified. He fought against legislation that would curb corruption, flooded the judiciary with his own corrupt people, and controlled all federal contracts with an iron fist. He also had a police force of about 4,000 people that were comprised of, quote, mostly bandits that patrolled the Mexican countryside. Diaz and his merry band of oligarchs encouraged foreign investment into Mexico from the U.S., Germany, Great Britain, but because Diaz controlled all the contracts, he also controlled the massive wealth that flooded into Mexico as it industrialized and became more modern. For as rich and modern as Mexico was getting, the money and power stayed at the top. It was just another example of European money and influence staying at the top and the people who are wealthy and powerful being primarily of European descent. What Diaz did offer, though, and he offered it to everybody, was peace and stability after centuries of war. And if you wanted that peace, there was a price to pay. Also, you can't dissent. Dissent really isn't tolerated in an autocracy. 
If you opposed the Porfiriato regime, Diaz would apply his famous system called, quote, Panopalo, bread or the club. First, he would bribe you. If that didn't work, he would have you murdered. This guy is a giant dildo, but like a limp, flaccid dildo, a thing inherently and disappointingly useless for what it's supposed to be, not a dildo that can be enjoyed alone or shared amongst friends. Porfirio Diaz will rule over Mexico as an autocrat until 1911. He was an oppressive figure for over 30 years, most of it consecutively for the past two decades. What finally gets him kicked out of office was the presidential election of 1910 when he runs against a landowner named Francisco Madero. And Madero wins, and then Porfirio Diaz just fixes the election and puts Madero in jail and says he's the president again. When Diaz is finally kicked out of office for good, everyone realized that he made no plans for succession, irresponsible bastard after 20 years, and that creates a giant power vacuum. That vacuum would light the fuse and result in power struggles, battles, demands for reform, and will lead to the Mexican Revolution, a bloody and passionate revolution that will last almost 10 years. The people of Mexico were tired of being a piggy bank for Europe and the United States. Las Casas Bajas, the Mestizos, the Pulque Drinkers, everyone who was Mexican but still lived in this antiquated colonial system. A colonial system where they couldn't see a viable path to prosperity, where purchasing land was a near impossibility. The people of Mexico were ready to fight to fight for their home, to have some sort of agency over the governing and cultural direction of their home, a home that began when human beings in the Western Hemisphere became sedentary and had homes. This is the story of Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata, and by the end of the Mexican Revolution, over two million Mexican men and women will die, die while demanding a seat at the table, a table that they built and paid for but was always occupied by the wealthy elites and the Mexican people were proud and they were pissed. They'd been fucked with, invaded, perpetually looted by Europeans for centuries and now by their own government and oligarchs. It was also a demand for recognition of their ancestry, the culture that was prohibited and almost snuffed out, the culture of pulque, the culture of gods whose names nobody can pronounce, and demanding that the voice and imagery of those people be heard. That's the world our story starts out in. That's just how things begin. This may end up being my favorite series so far. This gets nuts. We are wrapping up this entry point into Frida's story, and I've mentioned, what, three women by name so far? And one got strangled to death, and the other two had to suffer through an inbred waterhead marriage. This was a very man-centric story partly at a necessity. It's not a salacious accusation to say that men have dominated recorded history, and it was sort of tough to find opportunities when you're trying to squeeze 8,000 years into two hours. It was partly by design as well, to get us in the proper headspace of the world Frida lived in, to get a perspective on her impact. I don't want to lose thread and think of Frida as we know her now, the global icon, the woman who's on the 500 peso note. You don't just get on a country's money, especially as a woman. We tried it in the U.S. and it got messed up and we still have renowned racist Andrew Jackson on our 20. That's how inspiring and gorgeous Frida's story is. It's a story that starts just before the Mexican Revolution in 1907 in the then small village of Coyoacan outside of Mexico City. It's a story of a young girl who is a mix of Amerindian, Spanish, and European, a mix of Mexico's history and identity, and it ends with her on its currency. 
We are in for such a ride in this series. There is sex, a lot of sex, espionage, political intrigue, backstabbing murder. We're going to meet a monkey named Fulang Chang. And the entire way, Frida's sense of humor, her outlook on life, and her art will be our guide. I am so excited, and I can't wait to come back with episode two. So until next time, take care, everybody, and I will talk to you soon. Y otro día por la mañana, antes de aclarar el día, soy el toque del clarín y el vuelo de artillería. Lo que ya había empezado, descargas de artillería, federales del gobierno, por donde quiera corría. las familias donde quiera llorando de ver la ciudadela que la estaban bombardeando tristes aquellos momentos pues y más aquellas horas de oír descarga cerrada y aquella ametralladora La noche muy oscura, la brisa muy serena, las principales calles de muertos está llena. Preparen los aceites, los panteones abiertos, que andaba la cruz roja levantando los muertos. Los generales, ¿qué es lo que ha pasado?